Now we could uh, start reading this and read it as history. And uh, if I was 13 years of age, um, history was really boring. Uh, a long time ago, uh, I think it was in the uh, city of Philadelphia, they went around to that city and asked, why are you no longer going to church? And there were two top answers. Okay, anybody want to venture one? Church is boring. And the other one is very similar to that. It's not applicable to my life. So those were the two comments. And to be honest with you, I've been in church uh, services and I've been waiting 45 minutes to hear the name of Jesus from the pulpit. And so I was kind of bored. In fact, at one church I was, had a little piece of paper, God at the top and me on the side, and I went and I did check marks to see how many times the minister talked about God and talked about me, and I think me started to get longer and longer and longer. Now, most of us don't have the mountaintop experiences that Moses had or the Damascus Road experience that Paul had. However, we've all come in contact with this great and awesome God in which we have fallen on our knees asking for forgiveness and rejoicing in the fact that we have salvation in Jesus' name. And church can't be boring. If it is, there's something that's missing, and that is Christ. What I would like to do right now is make your world a little more boring. Not the church, but the world. And uh, I was shown this many, many years ago, and today we're looking at not history, but a mystery, and it's interesting how we can just look at the scriptures and not find the mystery. And we're looking at history and we get bored. However, if we focus in on what the scriptures teach, now if I can actually get this open, there we go. The mystery remains even though we don't see it. Now, I want to spoil magic for you because this spoiled magic for me back 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> Got it? I didn't have it hidden at all. Gosh, tape. So whenever we see magic, it really is, how did I deceive you? There's no magic there. You know, one of the interesting things about the magicians in Pharaoh's day, they could do the big stuff. But when they got to the gnats, notice that they failed. They couldn't deceive at that point. Anyway, let's look at, uh, at um, Genesis chapter 49. 
And there we are going to find Jacob is, some people call it an oracle. It's a prophecy concerning the future of his sons. And he's looking into the future, or God is giving him this word. Just like Abraham spoke to, about Isaac, Isaac spoke to Jacob. Jacob is now speaking to his 12 sons. And we're not going to be able to look at all 12 sons today, but we're going to stop at four because that's the most important one I want to focus on today. And here we find that Judah is focused here as the recipient of the kingship in Israel. And through Judah, we find that we get the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's uh, read uh, Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. It says here, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I might tell you what should happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now he has a new name, Israel. He is, now we have to remember that God's providence is placed upon all of us. Okay, you're, you're taking a nice deep breath. God is giving you that gift of breath. Uh, Wednesday we had a nice a gift of providence. We had an inch of rain. Uh, down our way. The other bit of providence was there was only a few uh, hailstones. Only a few hailstones came down at the same time. However, there is a special providence that is given to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And this is what is coming through this oracle, this uh, prophecy through Jacob. Now, as we go through these oracles for the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, we notice that some of them seem to be cursed, some of them seem to be blessed. Whatever the case, the nation of Israel as a whole was blessed because of Abraham. Individual tribes... They had some challenges because we will notice, uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I did for a long time ago, that Simeon seemed to disappear. Not much reference to it as you read through the Old Testament. And in the book of Revelation, which tribe is missing? It says that there will be 12 tribes 144,000, 12 from this, 12 from this, 12 from this. The, the tribe of Dan. Dan's missing. Let's look at the blessings, the curses that are going to happen to these sons. Now remember, the nation of Israel, through providence, has a special, he's the apple of God, that's the apple of God's eye. And so we need to look at it as a whole. But let's take a look at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might 
and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now that's how he starts. And that's the firstborn. And you know what? Firstborns always seem to have that special this uh, in dad's eye, especially if it's a son. My uh, mother told me that, you know, you are the only one that your father lets drive the car when he's in it. I had three sisters. And of course, my name was Frank, Swobo- Frank Joseph Swoboda, Jr. That's, that's still there. Firstborn, period, is always exciting. But there is an interesting addition to the proclamation of this firstborn. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've read through Genesis, but if you go through Genesis, there are sexual sins there, and you're wondering why God isn't condemning these things as they're going through it. Now, what we could do is if we look at the Mosaic Law, those practices are condemned in the Mosaic Law, but in Genesis, they just seem to be just scooted right off, except for this one. This is verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. This particular sin seems to really be a bad thing. Where do we find this sin denounced again. If you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right at the beginning. If you got your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It says here, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife or stepmother. So it seems down through the ages, this law, right from Jacob's time all the way into the New Testament, is a gross sin. And so Jacob is now pronouncing judgment upon his son who should be the heir to most everything in what he has. He should have leadership. He should be preeminent. And his sin did not result in the blessing. Now the next section there is uh, Simeon and Levi. And I'm going to read that all together there. Simeon and Levi. This is uh, Genesis 49 beginning at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for its 
it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So we hear, we see here that Simeon and Levi are lumped together. Violence and anarchy is at their core. They're angry. And they seek vengeance. Now let's, what I want to do right here is, is, uh, the story of Simeon and Levi brings us right up to uh, the story, the events of one of the most interesting characters in Genesis. And it's so interesting, they, I think they even made a Broadway play concerning him and his coat. So Simeon and Levi are going to wrap everything up for us. So let's look at, let's turn to, um, it's, it's chapter 34. And I'm going to read a portion of it. I'm going to read the first 13 verses and then skip to 25. Genesis 34, beginning at verse 1. Then now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her, humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with, uh, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The son, sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriage with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get prosperity in it. Shechem also said to his father, and his, her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, for a great uh, bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me this young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Jumping to 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, they and his brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the swords and took Dinah out of Shechem's house 
and went away. The sons of Jacob came again, came upon the slain, and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and the fields, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? One of the things that is mentioned there that is running through Genesis is that Israel is to be kept separate from the Canaanites. And the trouble that Jacob sees is the intermingling of his family with the Canaanites, and that wasn't to take place. And in fact, what, does, what is actually the consequence of Joseph's life? Joseph goes to Egypt, and Jacob and his family are transported into Egypt, isolated in the one area that the Egyptians didn't want. And so that nation was separated from the rest. Now, this is leading us a little bit away from uh, chapter 49, but that tells us a little bit about what's going on. Now, it's interesting also, if you go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, what Simeon and Levi did was what the nation of Israel was supposed to do when a nation attacked it and God gave them into their hands Israel was to slay the fighting men and take the women, the children, and livestock as plunder. That's what Simeon and Levi did. However, all that they did was deceitful. It wasn't something that God had desired at all. And as a result, we find that uh, they wanted vengeance. They wanted to get back at the enemy question. When we want revenge, what does the Scripture say? What, cha- what book? <laughs> Romans chapter. Romans chapter twelve, verse nineteen: "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." And so we read here that there is this anarchy, this uh, great anger that is lying within Levi and Simeon. And of course, we find, as we read the Scripture, Simeon seems to evaporate. And Simeon had the southernmost part of the nation of Israel. And the next up from that was Judah. And it seems as if the Simeon, Simeonites, gradually moved into Judah and they simply... Uh, lost their distinctiveness. And of course, we know what happened to Levi. Um, Both Simeon and Levi were to be dispersed throughout Israel. 
And Levi stood with Moses, remember? And so they were given the role of priests. And of course, they were not given land, and they were dispersed throughout the nation of Israel, not having any land like Judah or Benjamin. Now, the interesting thing is the anger and the hatred and the anarchy that's found there. And you may not have noticed it, uh, but notice it talks about hamstringing oxen. If we can translate that today, it would be like destroying a tractor. What's the point? Why would you destroy an animal that's actually used for um, making food? Horses were not. We have to remember the horses at that specific time were primarily um, weapons of war. That's what they were used for. They are not used on the, uh, to till or anything else. They were used to pull a chariot. They were used to reinforce your armies. Um, and we, wrought, we can read how King David conquered a nation and the hands strung horses uh, because the Lord told him, you're not supposed to have very many horses. Uh, and so what happened then, the horses were let go. And if you try to ride it hard, of course, if a horse is hamstrung uh, and you ride it hard, of course, it's going to become completely lame or you're going to fall off of it. However, when it comes to an oxen, that's simply, uh, absolutely, you simply don't do that. Now, we have to remember that today, like my father had horses on the, on the farm, uh, and they pulled tobacco boats through the tobacco fields. But there was something that happened about a thousand years that turned the horse from a purely weapon of war into a farm animal, and it was this. The oxens were, had the harness on the neck, and they could pull. You do that to a horse, it's not going to go anywhere. So about a thousand years ago, somebody realized that if they put the harness on the shoulder of the horse, it would do work for you. Far more work than the oxen. It's kind of like the oxen only had the first gear, the horse had first and second, so you could get more work done. So here we have, uh, just so that we get this historical part cleared up, the, the senselessness of the killing of the Shechemites and the senselessness of just killing oxen. And there's this curse that's placed upon Simeon and Levi. This brings us to the most important one for this evening. And that is, let's start reading at 49 verse 8. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. 
So Judah was the first, firstborn. And of course, he was given the name Judah, which means praise. And we read here that Judah will have both authority within Israel and outside of Israel to rule. Now, we have to look down through history. What actually happened? King David was, was king, and we find that King David uh, had authority over um, various and different nations. He had authority within Israel. But there was also failures, right? He had defeats. He had to leave Israel. But generally speaking, we find that David had the rule of Israel. And we can look at the end of his life and into Solomon's life, and there we see this golden age in Israel. This kingship that was promised through Jacob had come to David and Solomon. Now, the next part of this verse is quite interesting. Look at verse 10. And this has a special context for us. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall the obedience of the people. Now, that translation, if you find, you can, uh, let me read it in another translation so that um, you can see a bit of a difference in the way it is actually um, worded. It says here in verse 10 in the NLV, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. That's what the NIV says. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because Hebrew scholars are having an interesting time on this because in this verse, they could easily put the word Shiloh or the anointed one. And so there is a struggle with the translators, what to put there, and so Shiloh or the anointed one. And what does that mean? Well, anyway, let's take a look at how it's stated again in Ezra chapter 21, verse 27. If you can turn to Ezra, sorry, Ezekiel, sorry, Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 27. And I'll read both versions, both the English Standard Version and the New International, the Old New International. So, Ezekiel twenty-one twenty-seven. Same words, same uh, everything that we find in the prophecy from Jacob. And it says here, O ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall be until he comes. To the one whom judgment belongs, I will give it to him. And the New International says, A ruin, and I will make a ruin. It will not be uh, restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him, I will give it. 
And so Jacob is proclaiming that there is someone else that's going to come. Someone who is going to take full and utter control of everything. Someone who is like a lion. Anybody think of a verse that kind of fits that? Let's turn all the way to the last book of the Bible. And Revelation chapter 5. There we go. Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to start reading at verse 2. Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And there we have a fulfillment here of Jacob's promise of the one, this ruler, the one who it's appointed to be is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's the one that our heart longs to be with. Now this passage, those promises that um, Jacob is giving to uh, Judah um, seems a bit strange to us. Kind of like if we went to King David and said, did you floss your teeth today? He would probably look at you and say, floss? What is that? I think my great-grandparents wouldn't know what floss was either. If we look at these passages here, it's an illustration of that Judah in their time are going to have this great abundance and we see this in King, King David's time and King Solomon's time. And how do we see this abundance? How do we see this uh, intoxicating abundance? Number one, um, he's got white teeth. How do you get good, strong teeth? Good, strong bones and good, strong teeth. You have to drink a lot of what? Milk, and so again, it's talking about teeth as white as milk. So, a great deal of prosperity is taking place. And the other thing was, he is tying his ride not to a tree, but to a vine, which means the trees are gone, and there is this harvest. That's taking place. A great deal of vines are all around. And he ta- it does talks, uh, uh, talk a lot about grapes and vines. And the healthiness is described there. And we see this uh, prosperity during David and Solomon's time. But still not the king of kings and lord of lords. That we see Christ will bring in 
Now, when we see these promises given to Jacob and to assert, given to uh, Judah, rather, these promises are not simply to Judah, but because Judah will result in the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords, those are our promises as well. One of the things that would escape us is if we stopped here and not look at what Judah was like in his life. And let's do that right now. If you can turn with me to uh, Genesis 38, 26. This is a, a little bit of a, an odd verse, but in Genesis 38, 26, Judah, uh, it says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. What does that tell you about Judah? Regardless of what his actions were, Judah is humble enough to say that she is more righteous than I. I'm not right. I'm not wrong. She is more righteous than I. Now, we can go on. Let's look at 37.26. If you can turn to Genesis 37.26. It's interesting here. I'll just read this for you. Thirty-seven twenty. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So there we find that Judah is tempering his brother's doesn't seem right what he did, but again, he prevented the death of jo- Joseph. And, uh, and so they listened to him. So he, we find that he was, in fact, the leader of his uh, other brothers. And if you can turn to chapter 43, verse 5. Okay, Judas talking to his father. Interesting. So it's Genesis 33.5. So wherever we see the family needing a spokesman, Judah has stepped in. And so this is what it says in Genesis 35.5. But Judah said to him, The man warned, warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And there's one, one more left, 44, verse 10. Turn to 44, verse 10, and I'm going to read a few verses there. 44, verse 10. And I'm going to read down to 17, 44, verse 10. He said... Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. 
He searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to to them, "What What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But for you, go up in peace to your father. And so we find on front of a powerful and awesome ruler like Joseph, Judah is stepping in for the entire family. Now this is uh, the next verse. We're still in chapter 44. And uh, let's look at the last two verses. And this brings us to the mystery of the Savior and the reason why Judah was chosen. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, Judah said. Let the boy go back to his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear I see the evil that will, would find my father. What did Judah offer? Judah offered his life for Benjamin. What did Christ do? He offered his life on the cross for us. Here we have the image of a substitutionary atonement illustrated by Judah. His entire life was leading Israel, and there we find Judah finally coming to the point of offering up his life for his brother. We find in this passage here the prophecy of Jacob towards Judah that there will be a king, a special king. Somebody special will come and he will take that leadership. And we find that, we find that uh, verse in Revelation fulfilling this passage where Jesus is the Lion of Judah. We find that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And this passage in Genesis chapter 4 49 is just the beginning of the mysteries 
that are found in the Scriptures. One of the words that is most commonly used by Paul is the word mystery. It's not a contradiction. It's not confusion. But it's a mystery. Why did God send his son to die for me. That's a mystery. But he did. Why did Mary, a virgin, have a child? There's a mystery. Why did Jesus ascend into glory? and leave us all alone. Well, he didn't. The mystery was that when he left, he was going to send the Spirit as a guarantee for you and for me that we have salvation in his name. Mysteries. The world, I'm sorry, is boring because after a while like magic tricks you can figure it all out it's the same thing again and again and again but when it comes to Christ there's something new every day the mystery of salvation is refreshing as we look to him trusting in his salvation. He died for us that we could live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you for the glory that we have in knowing your son, knowing our salvation, hope for eternal life. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.